I just realized I forgot my Bible, but I think I can manage with what's on the screen. We'll find out. I'm going to spend a couple weeks uh, still focusing on the resurrection rather than going back to Ephesians. Uh, I thought originally I'd probably go back to Ephesians. Then I thought I wanted to do Psalm 16, which is what the bulletin says, but then to set up Psalm 16, I wound up doing a lot of other stuff still in Luke. So Psalm 16 will probably be next week. This week we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. So if you're using a pew Bible, you will find that on 885. 885. So this is going to be a a long introduction to get back to the resurrection because I want to provide quite a bit of context. And to do that, what I'm going to start off doing is I'm going to revisit what we did three and a half years ago. There was a message I did on church liturgy, Uh, the history of it, the development of it. I'm not going to do that whole message because if you were here three and a half years ago, I'm sure you would instantly recall what we discussed back then. But I do want to hit the highlights of that. And if it intrigues you enough where you feel like there's too much left out, I can always provide notes of what we did three and a half years ago. But regarding church liturgy, the word liturgy itself, if you break down the etymology of it, like what does the word actually mean, uh, its origin, its roots, liturgy means work of the people. It's the work of the people. And it's related very closely to remembering. So you got to remember to do your work. And to give you a really easy illustration of this, our our country, every country has a liturgy, uh, certain ways that they celebrate what it means to live in their country, these patriotic holidays. And liturgy within a country is meant to remind people of, you know, when they became a nation, the freedoms that they enjoy, uh, certain key individuals in their history. That would be a country's liturgy. I'm somewhat critical of our American uh, national liturgy, and that it's less about remembering and it's more about entertaining. You know, back in the day, you had these holidays to remember certain incidents or certain people, and you celebrated those when they happened, but now we always put them on a Monday because that's more entertaining. It's really more about us than it is about remembering. And so really, in my opinion, and this is all opinion, so you can like throw this away, But in my opinion, we don't remember well in our country. Uh, We rather just enjoy three-day weekends so that we can do things that we want to enjoy rather than remember a lot of the sacrifice that brought us to where we're at. But that's free. Acts chapter 2, here's how liturgy started in the church. This is at Pentecost. It reads, So those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. And that day, which actually is part of liturgy, so that's now a practice, when you believe, when you're a Christian, you get baptized. You say, I've confessed Christ as my Lord and my Savior. On that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That's all liturgy. That's what they did. That was their habit. It was the work of the people. What do we need to remember that the apostles have said? What have they taught us that we need to pass on to others? What have they taught us about prayer? What have they taught us about the fellowship and the breaking of bread? That's all liturgy. 
in Acts chapter 2. Tradition isn't a bad thing, and this is somewhat artificial, but traditionalism, just for the sake of traditionalism, without actually understanding where the tradition comes from, traditionalism can be a bad thing, but tradition is a very biblical thing. And to show you a reference on that, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. That's liturgy. It's working to remember what was entrusted to us that we then pass on to the next generation. That's liturgy in a, in a good sense. In its best sense, liturgy represents the church's commitment to remember. The church is working to remember what was handed down to us almost 2,000 years ago. And we remember it and we employ it because we're not reinventing the church. We're merely taking what was entrusted to us. We want to remain faithful to it and we want to pass it on to the generation that comes after us. The Bible has more than 200 remember things We've got things like, these were key ones in the Bible, remember your slavery, remember the Sabbath, remember your creator, remember how he, Jesus, told you, and do this in remembrance of me. Those are just some key ones. Now, this is in reference to uh, the nation of Israel remembering the slavery that they had in Egypt, but it's certainly appropriate for us to remember our slavery and sin because there's a parallel there. You know, they remembered the Sabbath day in certain very strict ways. Uh, We are uh, not called to remember, not to observe Mosaic law. We've been set free from that. Uh, But we are to remember the Lord when we gather together to worship. And we do that on what is called the Lord's Day, Sunday. We'll talk about that next, just a little bit. Because liturgy and church history started off on Sundays. What the church celebrated was you gather together on Sundays. It wasn't, it's not prescribed in the Bible. You can't find a place in Scripture that says the church ought to meet on Sundays. But they found it good to do because the Lord was resurrected on Sunday. It was a great way to celebrate our Lord was raised on the third day, on a Sunday. So that became part of the liturgy. That became part of the practice. But let me assure you, for the first several hundred years... They weren't worshiping on Sunday mornings in the Roman Empire. They were worshiping after all the work was done. And then the church, I think, gathered in the evening. Remember Eutychus, Paul's preaching, and he's preaching late, and the guy falls out of the window and breaks his neck, or dies. I don't know how he died. And Paul raised him from a state of death. But for hundreds of years, Sunday wasn't this sacred day in the world. It kind of became... The church was gathering on Sundays, for the most part, I think Messianic Christians probably still gathered mostly on Saturday, as was their tradition. The Bible doesn't say, this is the day you ought to worship. The church merely found it good to worship on Sundays. It became more of a thing when Constantine was the emperor of the Roman Empire, who first at some point tolerated Christianity and uh, issued an edict of toleration. In our country, we call those executive orders. He issued an edict of toleration, and then he issued an edict where, where Christianity actually became the official religion of Rome. 
and he prescribed that the church gather on Sundays because he wanted a united Roman Empire. He wanted everybody to be on the same page because he believed if the church was on the same page, that would actually benefit him as well as an, as an emperor. So thanks to Constantine, if you want to give him thanks for that, there kind of became this uniform standard where the church in the Roman Empire worshipped God, worshipped Christ on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Then the church found it uh, where they decided, well, every Sunday is a celebration of Christ's resurrection, but I think we also ought to celebrate the day once a year when Christ rose from the dead. Because it happened on one very specific historical day. We're not just remembering the spirit of Christ. There was a day his body rose from the grave. And so part of the liturgy became not only do we worship on Sundays, but one of those Sundays in particular, we will celebrate the one who was crucified rose from the grave. And that became part of the liturgy. And on that day, baptisms became a... And increasingly, I'm not saying uniform across every stripe of church, but increasingly so, that's when the church baptized new converts as believers, as part of the, as part of the church on that resurrection, what we call in our culture often Easter Sunday. That's when people were baptized. We'll come back to that in a moment. After that, the church added Pentecost. Fifty days after Christ rose from the grave, the Spirit was poured out from heaven. And in association with that, they, they kind of grouped together Christ's ascension, which happened after 40 days. So 40 days after he was resurrected, he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the throne on high. And then 10 days after that, the Spirit was poured out by the Father and the Son upon the church. That's the day of Pentecost. This all became part of the liturgy of the church. We're remembering on Sundays in particular. We're remembering on that one resurrection Sunday he rose. We're remembering he ascended. We're remembering he poured out his spirit. And then added to that, well, actually, these are known as the great 50 days from the day of resurrection until the day of Pentecost. There's 50 days. So in church history, that was known as the great 50 days. Then in addition to that, the church added Lent, which actually occurs, actually all these events occur before Resurrection Sunday. I've got them below. But Lent was in preparation for Christ's suffering, death, burial, resurrection. Palm Sunday is when Jesus came into Jerusalem and was celebrated as the son of David. Monday, Thursday, Monday uh, is, is in church history, the day where Christ washed his disciples' feet. And he gave them a new commandment. Love one another as even, even as I have loved you. Monday comes from a word which means commandment. So the emphasis on Monday Thursday is we've been given a new commandment to love one another even as Christ loved us. Good Fridays, when the church especially remembered Christ's crucifixion, Holy Saturday, a quiet Saturday of somber remembrance. <clears throat> Christ was in the tomb and that takes us back to resurrection. After that, the church celebrated Christ's birth. Now, you'll not find that in Scripture, that we ought to celebrate Christ's birth. But he was born because he wasn't just a heavenly being that came down and appeared as a man. He actually became one of us. 
and the church saw fit that this is important to remember that he who is the eternal son of God was made something he was not before. He took on flesh and blood. He became a man born of a virgin Mary in the town of Bethlehem. And the church added this to their liturgy because it's an important point. After that, they added epiphany which uh, in the Western church is the day when Christ was manifested to the world for who he really was when the wise men (coughs) traveled to Jerusalem. That didn't happen just a few days afterward. But this is just part of the liturgy because it did happen. The point is it did happen. There were some Gentile magi who did travel to Jerusalem and then found that they should go down into Bethlehem and they did present gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh because of who he was. They were recognizing something unique about this child, though I don't think he was days old. I think he was older than that. After that, the church added Advent because they decided we prepare for his resurrection. Let's, we ought to have something where we prepare for his birth. So there were four Sundays before the day Christ was celebrated as being born. Four Sundays are the four Sundays of Advent where we anticipate his coming. And the focus is on uh, prophecy. What has scripture told us about his coming? After that, the church added Trinity Sunday. All this, all the, everything else that's on the screen are historical events that really did occur. And then the church ran out of ideas for things that historically happened that ought to be on the calendar. So they said, well, the most important doctrine we can think of is the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists as in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So after all of that, after Pentecost, the next Sunday after that was Trinity Sunday. And hymnals, I'm not sure about the hymnal we have now, but most hymnals had a section of hymns uh, that was under the subtitle of Trinity. They're all hymns celebrating the Trinity because that's an important doctrine of the Christian church. And then after that, the church added various saints. And then after that, the church added more saints and more traditions. And the church became very bogged down with liturgy. So much liturgy, the gospel... And what the Bible said about things wound up being kind of obscured in a lot of cases. And that kind of existed for a long time through those Middle Ages until we had something that was known as the Protestant Reformation where Luther broke through and all, those, all that liturgy fell by the wayside. Not uniformly so much as I have it on the screen right now, but a lot of it was stripped away. To varying degrees. And for some traditions, it went back to the only liturgy they knew was we worship on Sundays. Because they so rejected all of the baggage that had been packed on by a Roman Catholic church and the whole priestly system. They just wanted to chuck it all. Any association. We're just going back to worshiping on Sundays. Well, that was originally in the Protestant Reformation, but eventually didn't take too long where... Probably every church, most every church we know of celebrates Christ's birth and they celebrate the resurrection. Now, to be fair, there are some groups that don't celebrate Christ's birth. Uh, When the pilgrims came to America, they were not celebrating Christmas or Christ's birth. That was part of a liturgy and a Roman Catholic system that they'd rejected 
And so they explicitly did not celebrate Christ's birth. But the church pretty pretty quickly, even after the Protestant Reformation, even the most extreme groups got back to celebrating resurrection. There was a very specific day where Christ rose from the grave. Now, all of this has given rise to two different ways you can approach a worship service. They're called the regulative principle of worship and the normative principle of worship. I've got good Presbyterian friends, uh, and there's some uh, Reformed Baptists that are more strict than I am. They follow what is called the regulative principle of worship, which means uh, our worship should be regulated by what the Bible says. And I agree with that principle. But what they mean by that is, if the Bible doesn't tell you you should do it, don't. Now, the really strict groups and I've got friends that are in this, they only sing psalms. And so when you're like, well, doesn't doesn't even Paul say uh, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? And they're like, well, those are actually three types of psalms. Like, I'm not sure that's three types of psalms. I think it's psalms and something that's categorized as hymns and spiritual songs. I think there are three categories that... Christ is given to the church that the church should use. But that's the, that's the regular principle. John Calvin was an advocate of the regular principle. If I can't see that the Bible says we should do it, we don't. Uh, the normative principle is something that Martin Luther uh, would adopt or agreed with. Normative what would be, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, I think we can do it. To the glory of God, and we mean to exalt Christ our Savior. So... Uh, The Bible doesn't forbid a lot of ways that we can worship so long as it's done to the glory of God and Christ is exalted as our Lord and Savior. It's acceptable. So that would be the normative principle of worship. Now, here's another point of opinion, which you can disagree with me if you like. But remember when the Roman Catholic Church kept adding more and more baggage and tradition and the gospel wound up getting obscured? In my opinion... And this is just an opinion. In my opinion, the church sometimes can err a little bit even now in that when they start adding patriotic holidays and greeting card holidays to the worship of this church, it can obscure the gospel. Uh, On Mother's Day, you know, we do some way that we honor mothers. We last couple of years, we've given away chocolates. Uh, Previous years, we've done a little gathering downstairs. But I think I've been here long enough, people know, I don't structure the whole service about mothers. I don't come up with a special Mother's Day sermon every year. I just teach the Bible, be that as it may. I'm going to say in 29 years, there may have been a year where I did find something in, in the Bible that I wanted to explicitly teach regarding mothers, and that's, that's fine. But when the church caters to Mother's Day, you know, Father's Day, uh, graduation day, you know, military patriotic days. When the church starts adding all that on, I think that's kind of like the same as adding a bunch of saints into the calendar and saying this is what we're talking about rather than just what the Bible says. That's my opinion. That's why I don't do it. All right. So here's a few conclusions. Conclusion number one, all churches have liturgy. Every church, even the church that started last week, they met for the first time on Resurrection Sunday, and now today's their second week they've ever met. And then somebody, they do something a little different, and somebody complains after the service, well, that's not the way we did it last week. 
We've broken our liturgy. Every church has liturgy. Ways that you choose to uh, worship God when you gather together. Conclusion number two. Liturgy can help us see a church bigger than ourselves and our own local church. I like when we read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I like when we sing hymns that are very old because it connects me. It reminds me of the connection I have with saints that have gone before. If all I do is sing the top 20 of what's latest, I don't think it gets down into my soul like it ought. I remember songs, some of my earliest memories from my earliest childhood are songs I remember singing in church or in a boys' choir at Pilgrim Lutheran Church. Those are some of my earliest memories. And, and those songs still resonate deep within my soul in good times and hard times, in difficult times. I remember those songs. I remember as a boy, and this is off the cuff, that I remember as a boy, like, you know, when, when you're a child, I, I, I suppose, you know, you get scared by lots of things, scared of the dark, things that go bump in the night. And I, I would sing, now I can't remember the song, but there was a song I would sing all the time, about trusting Jesus, you know, like I'm just start singing the song. I'd put it in my mind, like I'm just going to trust Jesus in this situation. Those those songs like that come back to your come back to my mind, even though it's I'm not proving the point at the moment. <laughs> Number three, any liturgy or tradition can become a rote practice or can be taken too far. That is preferred over Scripture. Uh, liturgy, the work of the people, is good, but in the ways that we choose to remember. Some of the ways we try to do that, it can be taken where it becomes an end to itself and we've lost the purpose. I use an Advent wreath. It helps me remind, it reminds me of, of anticipating Christ coming. But there's nothing sacred about an Advent wreath. The Bible doesn't say you should do it. A couple times over the years, people have objected to that. You know, one of the famous stories here from way back in the day, there was a PhD young, young individual, an adult, from uh, University of Illinois came in and he, he just basically thought I was Roman Catholic because I had an Advent wreath. And he was highly offended. He actually was kind of disruptive in Sunday school as well, as I recall. Number four, liturgy is flexible and adaptable. Uh, it's not set in stone. The way we do it isn't right and everybody else is wrong. There, there can be great variety in liturgy. Great variety in liturgy. Uh, so long as it's done to the glory of God to exalt Christ as our Lord and our Savior, it's within the parameters of what God's Word has taught us. There can be a lot of variety there. So I'm going to open it up here for any initial comments or questions before I build on this. That's a good question. Uh, and I'm going to say it's somewhat nuanced, okay? Like there was a group called... Cindy, what was that group, King? I can't remember. And, and they sang a song about the Lord's Supper called Shot of Love. And I thought, that is just so crass. But as I kind of acquainted myself with the group, I, I wouldn't want to sing it in church, but I, I really think they were worshiping Christ. I mean, I'm not there to judge. I can't judge motives is what it boils down to. I'm not opposed to rap. Like if somebody wanted to sing rap to the glory of God, I think then it doesn't mean we'd automatically do it. What it would mean is we would say, is this going to help the church participate in a way where we glorify God and Christ our Savior? Because if it's really just about, I ought to be able to do what I want to do, that's not the point of church. The church is, we are here 
to encourage one another and build up one another. So if it's like, I've got my gift, and I want to use my gift, and you can't tell me differently, that would be a problem. But could it be used in a way that the church is built up and glorified? I think it could. You know, a couple times over the years, uh, different times, we've had, you know, we've kind of cleared the stage, and we've had uh, different girls do some sort of an artistic dance ballet. I mean, they wouldn't have done that at Pilgrim Lutheran Church, and they wouldn't have done it in my Baptist tradition either. But I think it really was done, and it was done tastefully and rightfully. And, and I think those decisions have to be made. And when it push comes to shove, that's why we have overseers, where we would have to evaluate, you know, is this appropriate given our church and our situation? But I don't think carte blanche would say, oh, if it's rap, it's just of the devil. Yeah. So that's a long answer to... A complicated question. Anybody else? Um, there's there's a danger on either side, right? You know, one danger is is you've stifled, I think, uh, the gifts that God gives His church. The other danger is the other the other danger is you're like, look, you've got the gift, you want to do it, you should be able to do it, you should be free to do it. The Bible doesn't say I can't do it, so I'm going to do it. The meeting in the middle is is all the gifts are given to the church to build up the church. So if it's all about my rights or what I want to do, we've got a problem right from the get-go. Um, so that's nuanced as well. Cindy? So the statement Although I would argue you've never not been in a liturgical church, but I know what you mean. You mean in a church where it's very structured and very prescribed, and I think it can be that way. But I don't know that every church I've been in that is very prescribed and very structured is necessarily uh, dead or it's just rote. I'm not saying they're dead or rote. I'm just saying... Yeah, well, I mean, that's what churches have to work through, you know, uh, how to implement the work of the people, what's important to remember, how do you do it um, in a way that you think Christ has called you to. And churches will differ on that. Uh, Ryan and then Rick. <laughs> yes, Rick. I mean, there's a book written. I talked about this uh, on Friday night with some guys, but there's a book written some years ago called "The Trellis and the Vine," and the idea in this book, "Trellis and the Vine," is that the church is meant to encourage growth of the vine. And you encourage growth on the vine by building a trellis. And the trellis are the programs, the structure. You know, we're meeting at 1030 on a Sunday morning. We have a Sunday school hour before that. We have student clubs on Wednesday evening. You know, I have a men's breakfast that's coming up the last Wednesday of the month. I mean, all of that is the trellis. It's meant to encourage people to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But None of, the trellis isn't sacred. It's the vine that Christ is Lord of. You know, we can get rid of Sunday school and still be a church. I cannot have men's breakfast and still be a church. But we have to decide how do we encourage growth in the body of Christ. And the way you construct your trellis is going to differ to some degree from tradition to tradition. Some things remain the same. Apostolic doctrine and teaching has got to be part of what you do. Remember, it's got to, that's non-negotiable. And on and on it goes. Uh, uh, anybody else? Uh, Carrie and then Hannah. I think there was a lot of things that happened during that um, was 
It did, yeah, it made you reevaluate some things. And persecution, and that, you know, that's a, that's a very low-level adversity. But in churches where there really is more real persecution, uh, they decide very quickly what's important and what they will commit themselves to regardless of the cost. And that's a good point. Hannah? Yes, good, good clarification, and I agree with that. Um, in all of this, I, I do want to still emphasize there's a lot of nuance, and my job is not to judge motivations. Uh, I, I think there's, there's times I want to throw up a yellow card, like that, that is concerning to me, or I've been in churches where I would throw up a red card as well. Like I just think that is not in keeping with what the Bible teaches. Ultimately, I'm not, it's not my church. I'm not the judge. I ultimately can't decide those things. I'll give you a, a, another simple example. I've got lots of pastor friends that, in fact, probably most, most of the pastor groups, I'm not sure about that. I'll say in one of the pastor's groups I meet with, probably most of those churches have a Christmas tree in their church at Christmas time. I don't like Christmas trees in the building. I just don't. Uh, to me... I just, it's not right or wrong. I, like, I don't think I've made the moral choice and they've made an immoral choice. It's just not the direction I want to go. I have a Christmas tree at my house. Uh, my wife talked me into that when we got married. I think I was probably not a real big fan even then. But, but I just, but, and we've had it in our church in the 29 years I've been here on occasion, but we haven't for a long time. I just don't prefer Christmas trees in the church because to me that seems more secular, but I realize that's just my own opinion. It's, it's not right or wrong. That's just where I'm at. I like an Advent wreath, and I know not everybody likes an Advent wreath either. So, Anybody else want to weigh in on this? This is a lot more discussion than I imagined we would get. So I've got Sarah, and then I've got uh, Gary. Keith Green, and I sure hope you do. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 All, all that is true. Uh, and there's different ways that can be accomplished, right? Because in a Presbyterian church, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing, uh, but in, in my Lutheran church, when you stepped into the sanctuary, zip it up. There was not talking. Uh, and you were quiet. And that's not a bad thing. It was a good thing. In other words, they wanted people to quiet themselves before we're about to worship God who sent his son and he died on a cross that we could call ourselves sons and daughters of the living God. That's serious business. And so in those churches, that tradition was you walked in, there was an expected silence where you are quieting and preparing yourself for worship. That's a good thing. I can enjoy that. But my own mentor, you know, when I went to Grace Bible Church in Springfield, Ohio, who I've patterned a lot of my ministry after, they were very talkative before the church service. And they're accentuating the, the family aspect of the church gathering together. And, you know, we're, we're expressing our love and devotion to one another before the church service. And that's good, too. It's not like one is the right way and one is the wrong way. I think both enrich the church. Both can be good. Uh, both can be excessive. Um, things like that. Things like that. Anybody else? Uh, Terry. Uh, 
Right. And that's good. And I'm going to go back to what C.S. Lewis teaches about how the devil doesn't care which ditch you fall into so long as you're in one ditch or the other. One ditch can be we, we worship God, the transcendent God in such a way that we lose the aspect that he's our father. The other ditch is we become so familiar with this God that we lose the respect and the fear we ought to have for this God. So there's always two ditches. And, and we're navigating how to bring together the reverence of a God much bigger than we are. <laughs> His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. I mean, and we have to somehow cultivate that in our worship service. At the same time, we want to cultivate, you know, Christ Christ says, I don't call you, you know, my servants. I call you my brothers. You know, I'm in a close relationship with you. You know, back when, I mean, I, this is not where I thought we were going today. (laughs) Uh, Back when Don Meredith ran the barbershop in Mount Zion. He passed away some years ago. But when he ran the barber shop, you know, he was kind of an old school Baptist. And, and Don Barber, because he'd talk to me, he knew I pastored here. Don Barber would talk to me and he would say things like, like uh, you know, he, he lamented that people stopped dressing up in church. Like, remember the day when men wore coats and ties and women wore dresses and, and we are worshiping the living God. Like, if we would dress up for the president, wouldn't we dress up when we worship God? I think if you should want, if you, if that's what's in your heart, by all means, dress up to the glory of God, dress to the nines. And somebody else says, you know, God is my father. He sent his son to die on the cross to bring me into the family. I'm the prodigal son or daughter. He embraces me in his arms and he calls me his, his own. You don't have to dress up when you're family. That's the most comfortable place to be. And I'm like, if that's what's in your heart, then be comfortable. What I want to avoid is the legalism that says it has to be one way or the other, where we despise or we judge one group or the other. What God has put into your heart, I think both can be honorable before the living God. That's where I'm at. Um, okay, let me move just a little bit further. And that's just all review. That's just the, so I'm obviously not going to get done the message, but let me, let me get just a little bit further into liturgy and the way it's going to apply to Luke. It looks like this. Um, we've got, let's start, the most basics are the church worships on Sundays. We celebrate Christ's resurrection from the grave. The second Sunday in church history certainly in the Middle Ages, and even Augustine in some level uh, kind of refers to a practice that takes place. On the second Sunday, it's called in some traditions Quasimodo Sunday, which sounds like the Hunchback of Notre Dame. In fact, this second Sunday, Quasimodo Sunday, has everything to do with baptisms in church history. This is part of the liturgy of the church back in the day. What happened was, and this is what Augustine refers to, when Christians were baptized on Resurrection Sunday, they wore their garments that they were baptized in, typically white garments, they wore those until the following Sunday. So they wore those garments for eight days. And the the second Sunday then, Quasimodo Sunday, is from the Latin Quasimodo Genetai, or however you're supposed to say that, that's part of the Latin Mass that was in the Roman Catholic Church, 
But that Latin phrase comes from their reading in 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I'm not Roman Catholic, but that's scripture. And as newborn babes, we ought to desire the pure milk of God's word. And so that's part of their tradition, part of what they were celebrating in the best sense that these, bapti- these people that were baptized into the church as, as confessing their sins and they've become Christians. And we're encouraging them, continue to desire the pure milk of God's word. That's where the phrase came from. Now... If I put things in order in church history, we have Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday. The Sunday after Resurrection Sunday was also known as, which is our Sunday because last week was Resurrection Sunday. In church history, the Resurrection after Resurrection Sunday was also known as Second Sunday or Low Sunday. Well, the Second Sunday part's easy. It's the second Sunday after the first Sunday where we celebrated the Resurrection. But this Sunday, the one you're here right now, was also called Low Sunday. Now, can you imagine why it was called Low Sunday? Well, for probably obvious reasons, usually the attendance after the Resurrection Sunday is not quite as high as the one before. And we didn't have a resurrection breakfast downstairs this morning like we did last week. I mean, last week we last week. brought the resurrection banners out for the first time, brought the resurrection centerpiece out for the first time. I mean, things were just a little bit more dressy. Things were a little bit more exciting last week. This is low Sunday. So it's just a little bit down. But, and if you were to have a patron saint of low Sunday, patron means guardian or watch taker, another Catholic idea. And again, I'm not Roman Catholic, I'm just using some phrases. The patron saint, I would suggest the patron saint of Low Sunday would be Thomas. Because Thomas missed the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. He got it a little bit after the fact. Thomas was the one who said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. So he, he kind of got it after the fact. I mean, we're celebrating the resurrection again today. But it's not the resurrection Sunday where Christ on the third day rose again and we were celebrating it almost 2,000 years after the fact. But in another sense, even last week, we were about 1,970 years too late. Every time the church gathers on a resurrection Sunday, whether it's an everyday Sunday or low Sunday, or the resurrection Sunday, we're celebrating a fact that had already occurred. And it's worth celebrating because it's that important. So with all of that, that brings us to where we're going to be in Luke, which I don't really have time for now. But uh, in Luke chapter 24, you've got some women going to the tomb. And these women going to the tomb find the stone is rolled away and they're very disturbed and upset. And an angel appears and tells them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. risen That's right. And it ends this way. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened.
That's kind of the first episode in Luke's gospel regarding the resurrection. Women, there's some women who are believing because an angel has appeared. The women go back to the disciples and they're like, yeah, it seems hard to believe. I mean, we saw how dead Jesus was, how crucified he was. Seems impossible. But Peter, now we know in John's gospel, John went with him. But in Luke's gospel, he's just got Peter running to the tomb, looking in. He sees the claws by themselves, which doesn't make sense. And he's marveling at what had happened. I don't think he's in any sense understanding what has occurred on that resurrection Sunday until Christ appears. But there are things that are not adding up. The next thing that occurs in Luke's gospel are verses 13 to 35, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's where we'll be now next week. But let me read to you the text, if I have it in my notes. I think I do. All right, follow along in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. This is what we will discuss next week regarding the resurrection. It's a familiar story, but it's good to hear it again. Verse 13 says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's where we'll be next week. This is... 
wonderful passage of Scripture. It's a shame I can't go there now. Uh, But think about it. uh, Between now and next week, that passage, I think there's some fascinating things in there. And, And then the week after that, if I stick with this program, I don't know, I'm kind of wanting, I don't know that I want to be out of Ephesians that long, but that line in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures. That's why I wanted to do Psalm 16, because Psalm 16, I think, would be one of those scriptures that Jesus would have pointed to and said, don't you remember what Psalm 16 said? And I think that's the case because Peter pointed to Psalm 16 at Pentecost. And Paul pointed to Psalm 16 as well when he was on one of his missionary journeys. Psalm 16 has a lot to do with what the prophets said about Jesus being resurrected. So that's why it's taken such a long way to get to this point. Now I'm going to have to skip ahead in my, all my slides to get to the Lord's Supper. We'll observe the Lord's Supper.